0: Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at this passage. We're going to be unpacking it, and and we're going to be seeing that it deals with a lot of issues that are very controversial in our culture, You know, ideas like gender and sexuality and and the idea that within marriage that there may be different uh, calls to men and women. These are all ideas that are extremely controversial in our time and our culture, And, uh, and I want you to know, first of all, that as we talk about these, I'm, not, I'm going to be very careful to, to say that I'm not going to share my own opinion. Um, my, my commitment to you, my desire before God, is to dive into God's Word and to be faithful to teach what God says, not my opinion, what I think. Um, you see, God is our creator and designer, and His Word, therefore, communicates what is true And and his word isn't just teaching us this random set of rules that he made up and said, well, what rules do I want to give in family and to men and to women? uh, No, they're all things that are an expression of our design, nor are they things that Paul made up or that were an expression of his culture. No, these are, again, all of God's design. And he calls us to align ourselves with these because the more that we align ourselves with his design, the healthier, the happier we'll be. Now, that being said, I know that I will almost certainly say some things today, and not only today, but the weeks to come, that that some people will disagree with. Uh, Some of it may even sound offensive because it is so countercultural. Some of it might step on toes because it might contradict even some of the lifestyle choices that you're making. Now, if that's you, I want to first of all say, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're here. We welcome you. And and as I share these ideas, in no way is it in any way with the goal of condemning, nor is it to start an argument. What I really hope is that it will start a discussion. And I want you to see that even in this discussion, I'm not sharing any of these things out of any sense of hate or any, no, it's out of God's love and God's grace. But I also want to challenge you to evaluate everything that I say. I want you to evaluate and if you hear me say things and you don't, don't see me trace it back to the Bible as being the source of an idea, well then it might be my opinion and if it's my opinion, then feel free to disregard it because my opinion doesn't really count for much. But if you see me trace it back to the Bible and you see that the ideas aren't really from my opinion but for God's word, then I wanna ch- challenge you if you disagree with it, it's not disagreeing with me, it's disagreeing with God and what he says. And even in that, it's important to know God's heart in what he's giving us here in his word. God's not this capricious dictator that's trying to keep you under his thumbs. He makes up rules that you have to follow. No, this is all coming from the loving heart of the most loving and compassionate father, of our designer who says, I know the way that you were made. I know the way that I designed families to work. And these are guidelines that I'm giving you for your health and for your blessing. Now, we read these a few moments ago, this passage, these verses, and, and we're going to see throughout much of the time that it really gets into some different instructions to husbands and wives and men and women, and even fathers and mothers and, and their differences. But I want to step back and see that at the very beginning of the whole thing, it actually gives us an overarching command to both men and women. It's a charge that's actually given us to guide us in all of our relationships, It's an overarching call to sacrificial love. You see, before God gives the command to wives in verse 22 to submit to your husbands or to men to love your wives as Christ loved the church in verse 25, he gives all of this this call to submit to one another reverence for Christ. It's this call to sacrificial love. And it's a call that goes against the values and the wisdom of our day. Because according to the values and wisdom of our day, selfishness is what matters especially when it comes to love and marriage. Now, that might seem almost offensive to some people to say, how can you say selfishness is our understanding of love and marriage? And, and uh, well, let me, let me show you. And, and you, when you see it, you're going to understand it. Now, we all know what selfishness looks like in our kids, right? In our our kids, they are going to argue. And especially if you have young kids, it's, you know, I want that toy. I want that. It's my turn. It's, you know, it's, I want to play first on the game system or whatever it would be. They're always arguing. It's, that's my clothes. Why is she wearing that? And, and we understand that. And we see it as something that we need to correct. It's a character flaw that we need to try to correct. And in fact, I ran across a humor story um, about a mom trying to teach her kids not to be selfish. This didn't happen in my home, but I can relate to it. It's, I could hear my kids saying it. You had a mom with two kids, uh, you know, Kevin and Ryan, and, and they were uh, getting ready for, for breakfast. She's got the pancake batter out. She's making pancakes, and if she's making pancakes, they're arguing over who's going to get the first pancake. And so the mom is frustrated, and then and and she sees, oh, it's a teaching moment. She says, boys, now let me ask you, if Jesus were here, what do you think he would say? They were quiet for a moment. He says, I think that she would say that you should let your brother have the pancake first today. And so they're quiet for a few minutes, a few seconds, and finally the older one said, got a big smile, and he said, looked to his little brother, said, Ryan, today you can be Jesus. <laughs> now that's our selfishness, and we, 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 we're driven by it, and we try to justify it, and we laugh, but the question is this, Have we really changed? Or are we also selfish and only we just not only covered up better, but maybe even in our culture we justify it? Because when I look at our culture and things that are being read by experts, what I often see is people saying selfishness is good. It's not when with the kids, oh, it's a character flaw that needs to be corrected, but when it's adults, it's something that you need to pursue, especially when it comes to love and marriage. let me show you. According to the wisdom of our day, marriage is something that should be ultimately, the goal of it should be your happiness, your fulfillment. And so you want a spouse that is meeting your needs and is making you happy. And as long as your spouse is doing that, then great. But if your spouse no longer meets your needs, a bunch of counselors are going to come and say, well, if they're not meeting your needs, if they're not making you happy, well, then bail. Get out of it. You know, because it's all about your self-fulfillment. And, or if you're married and you find someone who's your true love that's, you know, that, that well, this is the person I could really be happy with. They're, you know, again, the secular counselors, many of them are going to say, well, if that's the person that's going to meet your needs. If that's who you're really in love with, well, then jump out of that relationship, jump into this one. Why? Because according to the wisdom of our day, we will say that marriage is all about love, but their definition of love is not about a commitment, it's about an emotion. It's about the feeling that we get from being in love, that the sense of passion. And again, according to the wisdom of our world, if the passion is gone, if you don't feel it, if you're not enjoying it, well, if the passion's gone, the love is gone. And if the love is gone, then why stay in the marriage? Because the culture says it's all about selfishness. The purpose is to fulfill me, it's to make me happy. The purpose of marriage isn't to serve my spouse, but to find a spouse that will serve me, that will help me be all that I can be. And as long as I have that, as long as they're helping me, I've got a good marriage. If that fails, you know, then then there's no marriage. Why stay in it? Now, here's what I want you to realize. That's the wisdom of the day. But God calls us to a radically different understanding of what love and what marriage is. According to God, love and marriage isn't about selfishness. It isn't about getting your way. It's about a selflessness. It's about serving the other person. It's about meeting the other person's needs. That's what he's talking about in verse 21, when he calls us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a radical call to submissive love. Now, right off the bat, even when I say that, I know some people are going to say, wait a second, you said a four-letter word. Uh, you know, submission, that's, I mean, that's, that's a bad word. It's offensive. Now, here's the problem. Even in this word, we don't understand what the Bible teaches. When we think of the concept of submission, most of us think of this passive weakness that surrenders. However, Paul calls us to submit to one another in love in a way that is strong, that is proactive. It's a submission of my own interests and desires to the needs, to the growth, and to the well-being of the other person. Again, when we tend to think of it, we think of submitting to the other person's will. But Paul doesn't call us to submit to the other person's will. He calls us to submit our interests to the other person's needs and growth. And again, if we are to almost divide this out, we think of passive submission. Passive submission that we often think of is submitting to the other person's will, that, that they you know, tell us what to do. No, Submissive love, this strong submission, is a proactive one that submits ourselves to the other person's needs and growth. Now, we might have a hard time imagining what this looks like. Well, if you have a hard time, let's go to the ultimate example of it is Jesus. In Philippians 2, it talks about we should follow Jesus' example of this kind of submissive love. It starts out in verse 4, it says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which, was awesome, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we, he's calling us to look not only to our own. It's not about selfishness, but it's about meeting other people's interests, their needs, and what is the example? Jesus, and what do we see about Jesus? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He existed in eternity as God, but then he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, ultimate self-sacrifice, ultimate giving of himself to meet our needs. But here's what I want you to think through. When he died on the cross for us, was he submitting to our wills? Was he submitting to our desires, what we wanted him to be? No, (laughs) we wanted to be left in our sin. You know, the people of that day, they wanted a Messiah that would be a political Messiah that would help them accomplish their agenda. We know what we want, and we want somebody that's going to help us accomplish that. And so they rejected Jesus because he was not at all what they wanted. In fact, he came to give himself to our needs. And our needs are things that that ultimately what happens is the problem was our sin, and he exposed that. He spoke things that were offensive to people, and he said, okay, your need is your sin, and you need to confess it, and I'm going to die on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven and you can have a relationship with, with me. He came to meet our deepest needs, even though that was not something that we had all desired. So when we look at that example, and we see that Paul is calling us to that kind of submissive love, it's a strong one that is that is proactive, that is, that is in, in no way calling us to give in to someone's demands or to give to someone's preferences, but to submit our will, in a sense, to a commitment to their, their, their need, to their growth. This is hard for us to do. And I'll tell you, even when I look at myself, there are times that I would claim that I was being very loving and very other-centered, and, and especially in marriage, and and, and I, I would claim to do that, but a lot of times, I could even do that out of selfish, selfishness. You know why? A lot of times, my submissive love really is driven out of a selfishness of saying, I don't want conflict. So I want to protect myself from conflict, so I'll just give in to what the other person demands. Or I want, you know, if, 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 if mama's happy, everybody's happy. So if Sandy's happy, I'm happy. So, so out of selfishness, I'm going to give to her demands. And so we can all be guilty of this. It's the path of least resistance. But what Paul is calling us to is this commitment to the other person's health, even over their desires, even over their happiness. And so we're called to love each other and say, what is in the best interest of the other person? And it may be different what they want. It may be different than I want. But I'm called to give myself to their growth and their health. And we're going to see this play out, especially not only in marriage, but in parenting, because this principle should guide all of our relationships here. It's not submitting to a person of higher position or higher authority or because they force us or demand it. It's submitting our agenda out of choice. Now, this should define all of our relationships. But now, Paul specifically takes this broad command and then says, okay, now let's apply it towards marriage. And he's going to apply it towards parenting and other relationships later on. But what does this look like specifically within marriage? Because again, we've seen that that, you know, within marriage, the culture, cultural value of the day is not submissive, other-centered love. It's selfishness. It's looking to get my own way. It's do you meet my needs? It's this feeling. See, but God calls us to this love that is sacrificial and other-centered and, um, and, and seeing not the other person as a means to my own happiness, but me in a sense of saying, how do I serve them to help them grow, to help them be a better person, at a wedding yesterday, and officiating the wedding, I was even reflecting on this, that the vows that I use in the wedding, which are not that dissimilar probably than the vows that you, that you made if you are married, talk about this even in the vows. So look at, this is part of the vows that, that I use that we had yesterday. It's the repeat after me part. It says, I promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to seek to put your needs before my own. It's right there. It's not about you know I promise that you know I'm going to grow and I'm going to love you and feel a certain way. No, I promise to commit myself to put your needs before my own, not your demands, your needs, your health, your growth, and it's not just when I feel like it or when my needs are being met. No, to love you and cherish you, to honor and support you in times of joy and suffering, in sick and sickness and in health and abundance or need. So when I feel like it, when things are good or when things are bad those are the vows we say that's consistent with everything that Paul is talking about here. That's the principle. Now, does that mean that you let your spouse walk all over you? No. That if they demand things that you give in? No. Why? Because you're trying to meet their needs. You're trying to help them grow healthy. And listen, if if I have a spouse that's telling me, well, here's what I need to do, and, and I'm giving in, that's not helping her grow. That's not helping her become more like God. That's selfishness. On my part, that's not love. See, God is calling us to something incredible here. Now, even when I look at that, some people might say, well, it seems like all about action and about self-sacrifice and about... Does that mean that you know, if it's not emotional that we should expect Christian marriages to be kind of dull and passionless?" And, well, no, not at all. See, because here's one of the secrets, this great mystery. When we learn to submit ourselves to our spouse's needs, then... As a result of that, we discover the joy and the passion and the emotions of love. See, what you're going to find in the vast majority of times, what we're going to realize is that feelings of love and passion and even of happiness are all byproducts of the action. You see, if my primary goal is to be happy, to have the feeling of love, and I'm pursuing that as my goal, I'm never going to find it because I'm going to treat the other person as a means to that end. If on the other hand, I understand what God is teaching me here and I understand my primary goal is to nurture them, to invest in, in, to invest in my wife, to be able to help her grow, to love her sac- sac- sacrificially, then what I'm going to find is happiness and fulfillment and the feelings of love all come as a byproduct, as a secondary effect of, of pursuing this greater goal. So now we see this overarching thing and this call, and, but here's what I want you to also see it, realize. It starts with this overarching call, but then the rest of the chapter, verses 22 through 33, are now different commands to husbands and wives. And so there's a different, there's a different call of how we're to relate to each other. And, uh, and so we look at this, we've got to say, okay, how does that work? There's, there's, a, there's an idea of gender, and, and, and where does gender come from, and, and this idea of differences in gender within relationship, it's all, it's all by design. Now... I recognize if I say that there's a difference between men and women, and there's a difference between the ways we should relate to each other in marriage, that's extremely controversial in our day. So let me back up and look at three different views of gender and and how this works out in relationships and see where these all come from, and and hopefully this will help. So three commonly viewed different views. The first one is one that actually grows out of of an evolutionary worldview. This is the idea that all genders are by accident, in a sense, that we, since we evolved from by chance, see the differences between the the genders are are accidents of biology, and then the way that is figured out in our culture are the result of historical evolution. So, according to these things, you know, again, since everything's a result of evolution, it follows that any difference between male and female is just a result of biological, in a sense, accident, not by any greater design. The only substantive difference is really our plumbing. So that for us to evolve as a species, we had to have male organs and female organs, and we have different plumbing so that we could reproduce, because that's biology trying to work. And likewise, since that's the case, when we look at many of the differences that have played out culturally, well, that's more historical evolution. And so, for example, Many would argue that, uh, well, in the past, we needed physical strength. It was a necessity to be able to function in the world and uh, for survival. And because men, by accidents of nature, were bigger and stronger physically, generally, therefore, historically, there was an evolutionary concept that strength was honored, and therefore, men were kind of put in leadership positions. Men were seen as in charge. That was historical evolution. By accident, it's not by design. But since according to this view, we're a species that has now evolved beyond that, we no longer have such primitive needs nor such primitive views. No, we're all from the same stuff. We're all by accident and, and, um, and there's no difference between male and female. And, and basically anybody that argues a difference, well it's basically arguing based on stereotypes from the past, it's not based on any truth. Now that's the kind of thinking that's driving the current transgender movement. When we're talking about gender, we have to mention that as well, because that's a huge issue today. See, the idea is that since everything is by accident, everything is by chance, we shouldn't be surprised if you have someone who has the mental wiring of one gender and the physical plumbing of the other gender. Because it's not by design, it's all by chance. And if it's by chance, of course, you would have some mixture sometimes. And so you've got to figure out, well, what are you? And what your plumbing says doesn't necessarily mean anything. Now, here's what I want you to see is we're gonna get into this and we're gonna see that's a evolutionary view that is different than what the Bible teaches. But even as we start to get into that, I wanna be sensitive to the fact that this is an enormous issue in our time and day. And there are almost certainly people that are here that are struggling with that sense of identity. I know that there are numerous people here that have family members and close relatives, friends that are struggling with this. And you're trying to say, how do we help them deal with that? And I want to be clear that we need to be gracious. We need to be patient with each person as we interact on this issue. People are really struggling. This is a hard issue that people are struggling, and I don't want to just be like, here's what the Bible says. No, we've got to be patient and gracious with people. We need to be full of grace and truth. Throughout this series, we're going to numerous times mention books and resources that if you want to go deeper, I'd encourage one on this, if you or if you a family member struggling, a tremendous book on this is this book called Embodied by a guy named Preston Sprinkled. Really helps you deal with this, and just not only truth, but grace. Uh, we have copies down in the church library that ended the hallway. And so I'd encourage you, if you're here, want to think through this, this is a great resource I'd encourage you to go deeper on. And uh, as well as we want to be available to help you in any way as you think through, through this issue, I hope the church is a place of support and love. So the first view is that all the genders are just a product of chance. It's of evolution, biological, historical. The second view is what I'm going to call Christian egalitarianism. And and this is a view that says that, no, we have been created by God as men and women, and there are some minor differences between the genders. But this view takes one idea that is taught in the Bible, and it elevates that one idea to the point that it ignores other things that are taught on the subject in the Bible. And so the one thing that is taught is that there is equality between men and women. Now, that is clearly taught. The Bible says that not only, you know, we're created equal, that before Christ that we're equal, there is no difference between male and female, slave and free, you know, that there's, this is clearly taught in the Bible. But the problem is that if we take that one idea and we use it so that we ignore all the other ideas, then we've come to the wrong conclusion. And here's where it gets messed up. The argument is because we're equal, therefore we're the same. This view makes equality the same thing as equivalence. And the fact is we can be equal as men and women, but that doesn't mean we are the same. No, God says that we have differences. That yes, we are created equal, but there are distinctions between what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And there are likewise distinctions within how we relate to each other. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, if you take this view, one of the problems is that, then you go to the Bible, there's no structure that the Bible gives us of how marriages are to work. Well, you have gotta figure it out on your own. You now, God has given us, we're gonna see here in Ephesians, some wonderful teaching that is hard to understand, but it's wonderful teaching that will help us understand how do we relate to each other. And, and ultimately, to embrace this third view, which I think is the most consistent with Scripture, the idea that there are two genders and there are differences between men and women and God has, in his plan, structured marriage to work uh, embracing those differences in a way that is complementary. So we're complementary not only what it means to be a man and we woman, we're co- there's a complementary structure within marriage. So men and women are different because God created us that way. It's not the result of biology or evolution or cultural pressure, it's God's design And God created men and women differently because we each bring different strengths to a relationship and even to our culture and to our world. We have different needs. And so because we have these different needs, God designed this marriage to work so that we can uniquely meet the needs of our spouse. And within marriage, he's called us to function in this complementary way. So the husband and wife are not just two, we're two equals, but we're not two of the same. We're not two of the same people doing the same thing, making it up as we go along. Know that we're called to work together in a complementary way where we, the two become one. Now, we can only really understand this if we understand that this is all by God's design. Now, some of this is we, we've got to be back up and say there are aspects of the sense of masculinity and femininity that are somewhat stereotypical. And stereotypes are often, well, most men are this way or many men are and that's not necessarily what we're talking about. We've got to differentiate what is God's created difference, what is cultural. And, and so often we can get messed up when we take the cultural difference and we elevate that to create a difference, and this is what you have to be. So, for example, most men are handy. Most men know how to fix things. And my wife was raised in a home where her dad knew how to fix things and do things and, you know, it was very handy. And, and then she married a husband who doesn't know how to fix anything. You know, I somewhat joke, my dad taught me everything he knows, and he knows nothing about, about fixing things. And, and uh, you know, so I know nothing. I, I feel good if I change a light bulb. It's like, wow, look, I've accomplished something. I, I changed, I mean, I, you know, I've, I changed, um, we had um, light bulbs in our closet, the, the LED ones, and I changed those, like, like last week when Sandy was gone, and I was expecting her to applaud me when she came home, and she hasn't mentioned it, and I'm disappointed. And, you know, it's like, I thought it did something good. Now, am I less of a man because I don't know how to fix things? No. Or another example. You know, generally, women are much more aware of beauty. They they see things. They're the ones that decorate things. And and, and I'm I'm more the stereotypical man here. I don't get it. I don't see it. Um, You know, my my daughter and her husband just bought a house. And so my wife and, and Tiffany are talking all the time about decorating and colors. And I've got to tell you, I'm listening to the conversation and I do not understand the words they are using. I mean, they're talking about things that I think are colors, but I really don't know. And I would use some of them, but I would probably get it all wrong because I really don't know what it is. You see, most men have like a crayon box. We have got the eight crayon box as far as colors. I mean, I, I, I I know blue and I know red and I know green. I know yellow. I know white. I know that's basically it. The only exception is when it comes to college sports teams. I know scarlet and gray. You know, I know that. I know maize and how bad it looks with blue. But it's only because that's really important. You know, so, so I've got like eight crayons plus two, but that's all that I know. But, but most women, they've got like the 256 crayon box. And they think of all these colors and shades that I can't even begin to imagine. You know, you to, there are some men that are great in decorating. There are some men who have 256 colors that they see. They're not less masculine. They're not more feminine because of that. That's, that's not something that takes away from the gender. You no, know, we need to realize that, that some of those things are stereotypical. Some of those things we need to realize that are general. We're going to come back to that in like three or four weeks and just appreciating those difference of God's design. They're good things, and they balance each other. I'm thankful for a wife who... You know, decorates and makes our house look a whole lot better than I, than it did when I had it my own. But many of these things, while they're cultural, there's some that are core that are our design, and that's what God is teaching us here in Ephesians when it comes to discussing the family, that there is a difference between men and women and husbands and wives and even fathers and mothers, and He created us different because it was part of His plan, and to show you that it's not part of culture or evolution. You have to go all the way back to Genesis and you see him laying this idea all the way back in Genesis 1 in the beginning of creation. Look what it says in Genesis 1 starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now, as you read that, let me just point out one thing that's kind of easy to miss, and and that is this this interchange between the plural and the singular. Let me put the part of this verse up, and you'll see. God said, let make man in our image, which is singular, after our likeness, and let them, plural, have dominion. So, God created man, singular in his image. Uh, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, how do you understand what he's doing here in the singular and plural, and The key to understanding this is the word man that's translated is actually better translated mankind. And so we could better read it. So God said, "Let, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them, mankind, have dominion. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created mankind. Male and female, he created them. Now, who's created in the image of God? Mankind. Now, here's what I want you to see. If you want to see the image of God, it's in mankind broken up into male and female. So there's a sense that God, in creating mankind, took some of his image and more perfectly poured it out into female, into femininity, and he took part of his image and he more perfectly poured it out into male, into masculinity. So that what you have in mankind is the, the more full demonstration of God's character traits, of his attributes. Are we saying that God has female attributes? Well, yes, in a sense. And, but he's not a woman, nor is he a man. Now, the Bible does, when He speak, God speaks of himself, he always speaks in masculine pronouns, and I don't think we should try to change that. But what we need to realize is that in the middle of this, that you see in God, there's many times that you see expression of things that we might, traits that we might call Feminine. In fact, even with Jesus, let's take for Jesus, John chapter four. You have him with the woman at the well, and he is incredibly uh, sensitive. He's intuitive. He's aware. He's listening. Do you know a man that listens like that? I mean, it's no. I mean, he's like he's he's sensitive in such an incredible way. And you might look at that and it seems to be more female traits, but yet you see Jesus, who's the perfect man, who had it all. At the same point, at times, you see his masculinity. You see him going into the temple, and you see him in that masculinity and his courage, and you see his strength, and you see his tenacity. These are clearly more masculine attributes. So here's what you see. When God said, let us make mankind in our image, he takes the female attributes, he puts them in women, some that he doesn't give to the same degree to men, and he takes masculine attributes, and he puts it in men, and then he says, okay, I want you to blend I want you to interact in the world, and the world needs both, and especially within marriage. In a marriage, you need both, and when you come together, you need each other, and the fact is, is that there are differences that, that sometimes can frustrate each other. Why is she that way? Why? Is, we need that. I need to learn from my wife. I'm a healthier person because of what I learn, and not only from my wife, from other women around me because they bring things into my life that I don't naturally have, and she needs to learn from me. And when we're functioning better, we're making each other better. Now, here I need to make a human a point of clarification because this is where, again, our culture takes this idea and they get off track. So a lot of times I'll hear the culture say, well, men, they need to get in touch with their feminine side. And practically what they often mean with that is that they need to be less masculine. Or I hear them talk about women and, well, women need to pursue equality. And, and often what it seems to be is they need to be less feminine. And here's what I need to realize, that's a lie. Now, God calls me to learn from my wife and to be able to say from women that I learn things and hopefully strengthens who I am so that I gain from those feminine attributes, but he's never called me to be less masculine. Women, he's never called you to be less feminine that he has put some of his traits in you. And my friends, we've got to stand against the cultural pressure and to say, no, God has called you to be a man. God has called you to be a woman. And you need to live out and, and live up to that masculinity, to that femininity. It's not only needed in our marriages, it's needed in our parenting, it's needed in our culture. If we're not doing that, you then ultimately our, our culture's suffering. See, the idea is that God has called us with these differences and they're complementary. We need each other. And in fact, let me take you another passage that even explains this, takes it another step further. And again, this is not like after evolution. It's not cultural. It goes before culture formed, back to the creation. Genesis, we saw Genesis 1. Let's go to Genesis 2. And, and look at what it says about how we complement each other. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be left alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now I love that, a you know, helper fit. Now, the question, what does it mean to be a helper fit? You know, one way to read this, the literal translation of these words could literally be uh, a like opposite him. You say, like opposite? What's that mean? I mean, you're either a like or an opposite. You can't, you can't have, you know, you can't have both. And here's what it means. Think of a jigsaw puzzle, and you think of jigsaw puzzle pieces. You can't just take pieces and put them together. And you No, know, you've got to find the exact piece that fits. And what is that exact piece that fits? If it were the exact same, they wouldn't fit. And if you had one that was totally different or even opposite, it wouldn't fit. It's a like opposite, which is, okay, where there's a gap, there's a flap that fits in that gap. That it's it's in a sense that we fill each other's gaps. And, And here's what we need to realize, is that God has called us to, you know, not to be pieces that just put together, but to realize that God, Going back to Genesis, God sent Eve into Adam's life and someone who had tremendous power, tremendous influence. But it was a power and influence that was very different with needs that were very different. They were like opposites in such a way that they fulfilled each other, that they meant each other. And in the same way, if you're married, God has brought somebody into your life that's this like opposite. This person has radically different views than you, radically different understanding. yet They have equal power, equal resources, they're incredibly different and God's called us to complement each other because it's not only that we bring these different strengths to each other but part of what it means to be masculine and feminine is we also have unique needs so i don't have everything that i need i have part of what god has given me but there's part that's lacking and so god has you know given me a wife that is called to help meet my needs we have these different needs, and part of loving each other is in this complementary way is understanding how we meet those u- needs in unique ways. Again, we've already seen that this whole thing starts with this general call to, to love one another, you know, submit to one another in love, and, and then the rest of it gives these specific commands to husbands and wives. And, uh, and I want you to see, we're going to see in these coming weeks, it's not like God made it by, by you know, just kind of accident, saying, well, I need, you know, I created men and women, now I've got a family. Now, you know, I think I'll, I'll give the, these instructions to men, I'll give these instructions to women, and I hope it works out. You know, no, it's not that at all. God created men with masculinity, with strengths and weaknesses, created women and femininity with strengths and weaknesses, and then said, in that differences with those different needs, I now want to give instructions to men that will uniquely allow them to meet those deepest needs of their wives and use their strengths in such a way that maximize their influence of helping the other person grow and building a great relationship. And I'm going to give a unique strength and power to women that allows them to uniquely move into their husband's lives that gives them unique power, unique influence to shape who he is and to build a great relationship. It's something that's meeting these needs in a complementary way. And I look forward to, you know, I know Mike and Julie are going to start on that next week, and we're going to dig into it in the coming weeks. There's some incredible, it's often misunderstood. And if you're here and you're like, oh, man, I don't like what this says, you don't understand it right. When you start to understand it right, you're going to see this is beautiful. It's empowering. It works. And culture has changed, but these truths, our, our nature have not changed. We need to embrace what that is. But let me just end real briefly in saying, how do we do this? Here we need to come back and remember the source of our ability to love in this way. You know what? Ephesians is this long book. We've been on it for a long time for those that have been with us. And here we have these instructions near the end of the book. And the beginning of the book is all about how God loves you and knowing God's love for you and understanding and accepting God's love. And and now he's coming to the end of this and I want you to realize that it's, Paul's not saying, okay, now I've talked about relationship with God, now let me just go to a totally new issue and go to human relationships and, um, and here's some guidelines of human relationships. No, that's not what's happening. He's saying, no, if you want to have strong human relationships, if you want a strong marriage, it starts by knowing that you have a strong relationship with God. Because your ability to love people in the proper way is all going to be an expression of being loved by God. It all grows from, it builds on that. In fact, even if you think about it, we've seen repeatedly throughout the book of Ephesians that it's not about rules, it's not about how-tos, it's not about, you know, here's, you know, here's the things. No, it's a, what our need is a change character. So we can't look at this and say, well, this is Christian morality. These are the rules that you keep, and if you do this, this is gonna work. No, it still comes back to what we need is God to change us from the inside out. And these are guidelines to help, help us to know how to surrender to God. It's not just a how-to book. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, we're glad you're here. And on the one hand, you know, you may ask, well, are there principles that I can learn here about being a good husband and wife or better parents as we get to that in a couple weeks? Yes, there are. Why? Even if you don't know Christ, the fact is these are truths. These are the ways that we're designed, and the more that you align yourself with God's design, the better things will work. But on the other hand, Ultimately, God's calling you to something here that you don't have the ability to do. To love sacrificially. To give like Christ gave. You know, none of us, I don't have that ability. I'm not that good of a person. The only way for me to do that is to be loved first by God. I cannot give what I have not first received. And if I have not received that kind of love and know that I have been loved and graced in that manner, even when I disappointed God, even when I, I, I wouldn't have the ability to love that way, I can only give what I've received. And so if you're here and you're saying you don't have a relationship with Christ, and you might be saying, I need help with my marriage. I want to know how to build a good marriage. I want to need help with my kids. Or I want to start by saying, do you have a relationship with God? And I invite you to start with that relationship with God. Get right with God. The more that you align yourself with God, the more you get right with Him, the more that these things will make sense and you will have God's power to do that. There might be some here that you've done that, you know, you've trusted Christ, but you've moved further and further away and things are starting to unravel. And, and again, here's why I want to encourage you. Get right with God. These ideas will work, I w- they will help, but ultimately your ability to be able to fully implement them is going to be limited because none of us have this godly love. The only way is to come to God and say, God, I need to experience that love from you. And, and if you're here, no matter how far you've wandered away, the fact is that God invites you to that grace and that mercy and that love today. And I hope and pray that you will receive it. I hope and pray that you'll come to him and, and start with getting right with him, and then everything else will start to make a whole lot more sense. But if we've done that, what happens is that I know that I've been graciously loved. I know that God loved me even when I was a sinner. I know that God loved me even when I've disappointed him. And and so I've known that he's loved me sacrificially, and that teaches me to love my wife and to love my kids and to love others in that way. And the more that I understand that, the more that I learn to live in that way, sacrificially giving, the more that I find that I pursue that greater goal, the more that I unlock The true mystery of finding happiness, finding intimacy, finding fulfillment, finding the marriage that I desperately long for, it comes as a side effect of loving the way that God has called me to love. I look forward to being able to explore this with you. It's going to be a wonderful passage.